As we come now before God's word, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke in chapter 1. This is the gospel according to Luke chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, would you help us now to to listen, to really hear from you as you've spoken to us in your word. We know that your word is true, and we want to know what is true. Would you help us now guide us by your spirit and bring light to our minds and hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. This is Luke in chapter 1. I want to read the first uh, 25 verses here. If you're reading out of the Pew Bible, it's a slightly different translation, but it's essentially the same. This is Luke in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is God's word. If you were here with us last year, uh, you'll remember that this was about the time that we were starting the journey through Mark's gospel. And that's an odd place to be around Christmas time because... Mark has nothing about the birth of Jesus at all. He just skips right to Jesus' adult ministry, his public ministry this year, since we've just finished up Mark. We're going to head to the Old Testament in just a few weeks and read through a book there. You'll have to wait and see what it is. Teaser that I know, a little, little tease. Uh, but, but before then, we're in the season of Advent. And so in these weeks leading up to Christmas, these four weeks... I want, if God will help me, uh, to focus our attention on a very familiar part of Christmas, which is the angels. Now, by focusing on the angels, I am not bumping Jesus out. I mean, Jesus is the center part of Christmas. I mean, Christ is in the word Christmas. And so we're keeping Jesus at the middle. But I think that the angels have something very, very important to say to us that will lead us to Jesus. And so even though it may take a bit of work for us to listen to them, uh, we want to follow then what they say. Uh, This week, uh, we set up our house with Christmas stuff, it is starting to look green. It's not completely done. Nothing's ever completely done, I suppose. But I put up the nativity, and it's one from my childhood. And so I'm putting up all the little pieces. You know, there's way more sheep than I know what to do with, so they end up kind of scattered around somewhere. Uh, but there's, the, there's angels in the nativity scene, and we, know, we all know this. And at least in my version of the nativity, uh, there's two of them. And one hangs on a little, you know, a, peg up above, above the manger, and one's kind of off to the side, and, and they're very posed. You know, mine are kind of standing like this, their hands kind of sticking out. It's very wooden looking, and, and it's, I don't know, do you have nativity scenes in your home? Some of them, the angels often have this like long, flowy, curly, luxurious hair that looks very well conditioned, and, and the angels are, are also, uh, White, which I find interesting, at least in my nativity scene. And uh, now the angels probably weren't uh, Caucasian. Uh, um, we tend to be pretty ethnocentric when it comes to things of the Bible. Sometimes we even make Jesus into a white man, even though he was a Jewish uh, guy. We don't really know what the angels look like. Most of it, the Bible just doesn't tell us. When the Bible talks about angels, the focus of the scripture is on what the angels do. So in the Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in, the word for angel here is angelos. 
That's easy. It sounds like angel, angelos. And, and the word gets used a lot in the New Testament. So later down the road in, in Luke, when John the Baptist is in prison and he's wondering, is this guy Jesus the one who was to come? Is this really the Messiah? Is this really the Savior of the world? John sends angelos to Jesus. And then later, Jesus is now born and, and, and an adult. When he's going into Jerusalem and he needs to make preparations, he needs some housing and some food, uh, instead of going in himself, Jesus sends Angelos to do this. So these are not, at least in this context, you know, very uh, curly-haired uh, creatures with wings. These are humans that are doing this in those occasions. And, and in your Bible, it's probably translated, he sent messengers. So when we're reading the word angelos, the essence of an angelos is to be a messenger. That's their primary role. Uh, sometimes those messengers are humans, but most often in the scriptures, when we see these angelos, they're supernatural beings. And that's what we're seeing here. I mean, you can, can kind of tell from the context. Zechariah's in the temple in this very secluded space where few people ever get to go, and, and this angelos just suddenly appears. And then if there was any doubt, he later says, you know, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. Oh, you know, okay. Uh, so this is not just a human. And, and so what now is Gabriel there for? He says, I've been sent to speak to you. I've been sent to bring you good news. In other words, Gabriel says, I have a message from God. Now, here's why this is especially important to us. Because in the Old Testament, the last book uh, of the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. And, and he, there were a few others that were around that time period, was, was the last recorded writings of a prophet uh, speaking the words of God. And in Malachi, the Old Testament, this happens 400 years before the New Testament Gospels. So the gap between Malachi and Jesus is about 400 years, and we call that time the 400 years of, of silence, where God just did not speak at all. You can imagine then the waiting the wondering then if God is still there. But now, in the temple, as Zechariah goes in to bring incense, God speaks through his messenger, Gabriel. So there's a lot in this text that we're not going to touch on. Uh, you know, we'd be here till Tuesday if, that, if, we, if we tried. Um, but we're going to focus then our attention on what the message the angel is. So would you look at it with me? It starts in verse 13. So the angel, when he appears, his first words are, are, are don't be afraid. And that, you know, that makes a lot of sense because it'd be scary if you're standing in a, in a room by yourself and suddenly someone appears with you. You know, it might be a little unnerving and, and uh, whether or not they had flowy locks or not, they tend to seem to have to tell everybody not to be uh, scared when they show up. So there must have been something intimidating about him. And then right after he says, don't be afraid, he says, you're going to have a kid, a boy. 
This isn't Jesus, by the way, not yet. Jesus will be announced six months later. This is a different son, uh, John, the one that we call John the Baptist. And uh, when the son is born, it says, you're going to have, you'll have joy and gladness. I know we've had a lot of recent babies in in families and other things, so it makes sense. There's a child born, and and there's going to be joy and gladness. And it makes a special sense uh, for them because Zachariah and Elizabeth had no children at all. In this text, remember, it says that Elizabeth, his wife, was barren, even though she was righteous. So it's not a punishment from God that she was barren. She just couldn't have children. And then it says in verse 7 that they just... They were old, too old to have kids. And so I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but you can imagine a couple that have been married for a very long time and tried and tried and tried to have children and could not until they're just too old and you kind of long given up hope on the possibility of having a child. And now... This guy, Gabriel, shows up and says, listen, Zachariah, you're going to have a kid. And he's going to bring joy and gladness. Uh-huh. You know, if, you, if we actually believe that, if it actually comes, okay, yeah, that actually would bring joy and gladness. And the joy is going to be shared, he says. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Of course, that makes sense, too. If you have uh, friends that have had children, oftentimes it's like, yay, hey, you're going to have a kid. But look at the reason why the joy is shared. It's not just just because they're going to have a child. In verse 15, it says, the reason why many will rejoice when this child John is born is because the child will be great before the Lord. There's going to be something special about this child John, something unique, something that would make the people rejoice. And part of his uniqueness is that he's not supposed to drink wine. And I know that's confusing to people. That's an Old Testament reference to Nazarites. Uh, But the main thing that makes this child John unique is what he's going to do for the people. And this is the focus then here for us. Verse 16. He, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He goes on and says, we'll turn fathers to children and turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And then there's a summary line at the end. He's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So now that brings up a question in my mind, and that's the question then for us today. How will this child John prepare the people? What does it mean that he is going to make them ready because that matters for us. To answer that question, I think we have to look at how it unfolds in the life of John, which plays out in Luke's gospel. You turn a few pages to your right as the story progresses. Luke chapter 3. There's a big, long verse 1 giving us some historical context, but Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, here's this child now, came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, 
as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make its path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here Luke is telling us that John the Baptist is a fulfillment of what Isaiah had written much earlier, 700 years before in Isaiah chapter 40, that John, in preparation for the Lord, is going to help straighten the paths, that he's going to level the ground, that he's going to smooth out the rough places. And the text in Isaiah is a really beautiful text. It talks about comfort, for God's people and tenderness for God's people and it all culminates in salvation for all peoples. It's really lovely. But then look how that plays out in the life of John. I know this is a lot of work here to get to the main point, but here we are. Verse 7 here of Luke 3. John now says, He said therefore to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I know that sometimes Christians, as we're talking with other people about God, we kind of want to dress it up a little bit so that sometimes it feels like an advertisement or a pitch we like to try to make everything sound nice and, and pretty, but John just doesn't seem to care about that part, at least not right now. He calls, he calls not just individuals, the whole crowd snakes. Not very nice. He calls them snakes. Now what I wonder is how does that square with the fact that comfort and tenderness and salvation is supposed to come? We have to remember that the message of the angel was that John was going to prepare the people. And the way that he was going to prepare the people for the comfort of Jesus, for the tenderness of Jesus, for the salvation of Jesus, John would say to prepare them, he calls them then to repent and to bear fruit that comes with repentance. We can't skip over that part, the call to repentance, because repentance really is a gift of God. It's something that changes, changes our direction. So repentance basically says, yes, the needle in my heart, the compass in my heart is broken, and it points the wrong way. When I'm trying to go north, it's pointing south. And when I'm trying to go that way, it's bent in wild ways that my heart is really unruly and often unwise and unpredictable. Repentance, then, is resetting the needle of the heart on, on God. It's a turning of the heart. And so the message of the angel, then, was that John was going to do this, would turn the hearts of the people he would turn the children of Israel to the Lord. And then 
He also says he'll turn the fathers to their children in the spirit of Elijah. I know that's confusing, but that's the end of Malachi, by the way. That's the last words of God before the 400 years of silence. And later, uh, there's a messenger in this book of Malachi. If we'll go back there, turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. There's a messenger in Malachi, and Jesus tells us that this messenger is John. Hang with me. This will make sense in a moment. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, says the Lord, behold, I send my messenger, this is John now, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, let's look at the context. Why is this messenger coming? And we have to look at the verse before to answer that. The Lord says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by saying, where is the God of justice? So here's what's going on here. The Lord says, you've wearied me. He compares himself to an exasperated parent. If you've ever been an exasperated parent, maybe some of you have been that lately, you know the feeling. Uh, the Lord says, listen, you're, you're, you're wearing me out. And, and they go, wait, how? How have we worn you out? They don't get it. They think everything's fine. And so, so the Lord gives just a couple examples. He says, you say evil is fine, that it's not that big of a deal. Or in our context, maybe it's, Oh, Jesus will just forgive, and so it doesn't really matter what I do. And then the second example is he says, you say that God doesn't care about justice. So in a current context, it might be, oh, we see all the awful things happening with the sexual abuse and happening in all the news, and we might think, oh, it seems like the Lord does not care about this. And out of this problem, the Lord says, I'm going to send my messenger John. In other words, John, the messenger, is going to prepare the people by convincing them of their sin, by showing them their need for repentance. And this is really a, a disease, particularly of, of good religious people that sometimes we, we minimize our own sin or we say, oh, that's just words, I didn't really mean that. And we convince ourselves sometimes that we're better than we really are. And as a result, our love for God tends to shrivel up. Um, an, old, an old dead writer, one of the Puritans, writes about this experience. He says, repentance is necessary. Repentance is required as a qualification, and it's not so much to endear us to Christ as to endear Christ to us. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. 
Let me read that last line again. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Repentance, then, is helping us to see the sweetness of God. Repentance prepares us by helping us not to minimize sin, by, but by calling sin what it is, which is poison. So that we'll see Jesus as the only healer and it will take off the blinders off our eyes so that we'll see Jesus and come to Jesus. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 2. Oops. If you'll turn there. 2 Timothy 2, verse... Chapter 2. Last place we'll go here. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 24, Paul writes this. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul says a few things here. One is that repentance comes from God. God is the one who grants repentance. And it's really a grace of God to see that which is true so that a person comes to, their, comes to their senses because sometimes we think we're free, but we're not. So repentance then helps me to see, oh, I thought I was free, but I'm actually ensnared. Oh, I'm, I'm actually captured. Oh, I'm actually enslaved. Oh, oh, I need help. And when that happens, then God says, now you're ready. Now the compass of your heart is being turned. Now you're prepared for the birth of my son into the world. Have you ever opened up a, a Christmas present and, uh, and the person who gave it to you is, is there, which sometimes makes me uncomfortable because I never, you know, what if I, you know, what if... Uh, I open it and I don't like it, you know, but you, you, you've got a Christmas present and the person's there and you open it and you look at it and you say, oh, thanks. But in your head, you're going, what is that? That ever happened to you? Looks metal and fancy and there's lots of colors and lots of buttons. What, what is this thing? Uh, there, there can be some similarity to that in the gift of the manger, that, that some will look at Jesus and go, cute kid, and smile and maybe pat him on the head, but wonder what's the big deal? You know, what is this Jesus? And if we're not careful, we might disregard that gift because we think it's maybe unimportant or maybe because we don't understand it, or maybe because we can't see past our own eyes. And so as a result, the gift of Jesus then goes into the closet to be re-gifted or put into a white elephant gift or maybe returned back to the store and exchanged for something better. 
God then is sending these messengers in the form of angels to prepare us to receive the gift of Jesus. And one of the ways that he prepares us is by granting us repentance. That's true even in the life of the Christian, Zechariah, by the way. Uh, he says it was a, a, a righteous man, and yet he needed to repent of his lack of belief. Maybe that's a good way for us to begin, to repent of the fact that our belief is too small. But repentance is a, is a grace of God in the end. Now, it won't help us to understand everything about Jesus, but repentance does, in the end, draw us to Jesus. It does increase our desire for Jesus to cause us to lean in and explore and to follow Jesus. Repentance helps us to listen to Jesus. It guides us of the truth found in Jesus, and it helps us to bear fruit in Jesus. Fruits of the Spirit like real hope and joy and peace and faith. Don't you want that? Christmas is still a few weeks away, but right now we're in the season of Advent. Advent, of course, means the arrival, the coming. There's some anticipation there, like a little kid waiting for Christmas Eve. You know, the gifts are set up, but they're, they're closed. You have to wait for them. So Advent is waiting, but it's not just waiting in the sense we're drumming our fingers. Advent is a season of preparation for Jesus. And so, when you set up your nativity, if you haven't already, or if you do, you know, maybe you don't have one, when you see them, and the angels, because they'll be everywhere this time of year, and you see those angels with all their luxurious curly hair and all those things, at least take a moment to hear the first message from the angels, which is that God is making ready for the Lord a people prepared by calling us to repent so that by his mercy we'll turn to the Lord. And that in the end, when we see the child born in the manger, we'll see God with us and believe. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, thank you. Uh, for granting repentance to us. Would you bring us to our senses? Would you help us to see that which is true in, true in our world, but especially that which is true in our own hearts? Would you turn us to you and prepare us to see your son Jesus, the Savior of the world? And we give you all praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.